Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Sharath Rao. He's an engineering manager at Instacart, and we are on location at the Wrangle Conference. And Sharath has a talk later on, and I'm fortunate enough to have him here to tell us a little bit about what he's going to tell the Wrangle audience about. So, Sharath, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great. Thanks for having me, Sam. I'm a big fan of the show from having heard earlier uh, episodes. Nice, nice. Well, I really appreciate that. As you know, one of the places I like to get started then is to have folks introduce themselves. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to and how you got there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm at Instacart. been here for a couple of years. Instacart is a, um on-demand grocery delivery service. And my role here is I started off as the uh, data scientist or machine learning engineer focused on search personalization and recommendations and now I do that but also lead a team that is you know working on that effort so prior to this I've spent time at a couple of companies doing search advertising and auctions that sort of stuff over the last 10 years and even going back further grad school I worked on speech recognition and speech translation before it was you know, practically useful in the field. <laughs> it's part of the reason why I started working on other things after, after grad school. So yeah, so that's probably captures the range of things. Awesome, that. awesome. I hear a lot of stories from folks who, you know, I was working on this stuff in grad school and it just wasn't ready or we were in the middle of the AI winter and yeah. it kind of went into hibernation. And, yeah. you know, now that we're all, you know, so focused on doing this stuff, it's like time to dust off those skills absolutely work yeah yeah so in your description you you said data science slash machine learning engineering how how evolved is the distinction between the two of those at instacart and and do you consider yourself as spanning both yeah let me take the first one first i think at instacart well overall as industry i think we are moving better you know, towards understanding these two roles. And so at least we are sort of settling around maybe three roles, actually, data data analysts, data scientists, and data engineers. Even if they're slightly called separately, I think maybe there are companies like maybe LinkedIn or Airbnb where probably have data scientists and machine learning engineers and data engineers. Yeah. But broadly, the difference is around, you know, people working on data products, building systems and algorithms, essentially things that are consumed by others, other algorithms and systems who might be like machine learning engineers, mm-hmm. people working on things, the output of which is used for you know, decision-making you know, by the team that they serve or the executive leadership. We call them data analysts at Instacart, but data scientists elsewhere. And then finally, data engineers who are working on like platform, infrastructure, typically comes in you know, maybe later in a company stage. Right, right. Well, I think it's a lot of progress we've made from just a few years ago when you know data scientist was this unicorn that no one could really hire because we've defined it in such a way that you know it requires these disparate skills that yeah. you know aren't traditionally paired yeah i remember back in maybe 2012 2013 the the term of unicorn data scientist right was probably one that captures what you just described but i don't hear that too often yeah. there's more like specialization and people understand that over time most professions end up specializing Although I'd imagine 
It depends on the context of the companies. I would imagine, say, startups, if, they, if they're hiring their first data scientist, they probably want somebody who can also do like, the other two things at a reasonable level of competence. Overall, in a macro view, I think uh, the roles have sort of specialized over time. Yeah. And I remember back in that same time period, 2012, I think as a community, we thought that it would take way longer for us to reach this level of maturity. Yeah. It was like you'd see these stats that say, you know, we're going to have, you know, we're going to be under-resourced in terms of the number of data scientists until like the year 2050 yeah. or something like that. And I think, I think the this, this specialization has been part of the key for alleviating that stress, although we're far from having enough you know, people with data competencies to, to meet all the demand. Right. I think every speaker at an event like this gets up and says, oh, and by the way, we're hiring. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I've, I've heard that and also more recently I've heard about and maybe even seen it in the field where there is, you know, with, you know, obviously the market has responded to at least the perceived lack of, you know, strong talent. And so we have quick, like smaller one-year masters or boot camps that have served the need. So as a result, I think in, maybe in some part of the market, they might be maybe at like optimum or even oversupply of you know, data scientists at arguably at starting level. Really? Now that's happening quickly. Maybe, I mean, just generally that I guess everything is moving faster. And now even, for example, with newer areas around, say, deep learning and AI, there is, you know, there are, there are more research institutes, there are more, again, training, you know, workshops and so on that people respond faster to needs than maybe they used to. Mm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. All right, so your talk. You've yes. got a talk in an hour. Yeah. What's your talk about? Sure. So my talk is titled Lessons from Integrating Data Machine Learning Models into Data Products. Okay. So initially I had a two-part talk, but you know, today I'm talking about like the part one of that. But really the, the genesis of that comes from having worked at, first of all, you know, relatively a smaller company as opposed to some of the bigger companies that wherein we have, there is a product per se, and there are machine learning models that are integrated into various parts of the product. They're making different decisions for the customers. So there's that. And then there is aspects about like data scientists building models, model prototypes, and even productionizing them, but also interfacing with product engineers within a single team. And the fact that what I call like all model, all model prototypes look familiar, but every model in production is unique in its own way. So I'm trying to understand, try to frame a conversation about what does it mean to have a model in production? You know, what are the questions to ask yourself and how do we communicate as data scientists with you know, product managers and product engineers about what this model does? What are its requirements? What are the constraints? And so that's that's what I'll be talking about. Okay. And so how do you how do you structure walking people through that? Yeah, I try to keep it. Try to find, you know, going back to conversations within the team. For example, each time we uh, we have one team that has you know three or four product engineers, you know, a couple of data scientists, and a designer and a PM, right? And largely, most of the work happens you know within the team. And each time we work on a an experiment or a feature that that data data scientists build. We have this conversation about how will this go into production, and typically the conversations, you know, if you think about it, like the process of building a model, thinking about a problem, building a model prototype, largely happens, you know, within 
the, the domain of data science and maybe you know with some interaction with the PM. But the moment it goes into production, it's now touching like so many different parts of the system. And you know, a couple of things come in, like how much time do we have to make make a decision in terms of like the model you know running in production, you know. Meaning if you're serving up pages yeah, live so to the web, you know, you've got a certain... Yeah, serving latency, for example. Yeah. Address, right. Yeah, so there's a constraint that very often gets dictated by the product itself, and rightly so. And then there's this question of, you know, for the model to be successful, how much information does it need? And how can it get that information? By information, I mean, like, for example, let's say you're trying to recommend a product. Maybe you, you definitely need to know if you want to, you know, it's a personalized recommendation. You need to know the user, you know, user identity and their past data. You probably need to know, like, what page they're on and so on. But do you really need to know their recent searches and, you know, recent activity? Right? That certainly is, like, short-term context. So how much context do, do we need, does the model need, rather, to operate successfully? Both of these sort of give you a way to think about, can I cache my recommendations? You know, what can I cache versus what needs to be served in real time? Mm-hmm. If it's real time, can I do a reasonably well if, you know, let's say, let's say I'm making a decision about what product to show based on things that you've added to the cart recently. So think of a model that is continuously producing a you know, prediction of what, what product is a good recommendation but it doesn't necessarily surface that. It's always you know, continuing to score and maintain a best estimate of a recommendation in the background. But you know, at any point, it's available with a best effort response. So this is an example where you, don't, you, know, you have a good response whenever, whenever there's a need for it, uh, but you can wait until the last moment to actually serve that recommendation. So it's things that, are, that happen in the background. Are you describing a system that is, is doing like online learning or active learning? Which is where you're updating your model kind of in place? Well, yeah, so the, well, the model could be static. The model need not be updated, but the, the model predictions could be happening continuously in the background. Ah, based uh, on? Based on whatever data it sees. Got it. Yeah. Got it. it doesn't need to score and immediately report. It can keep scoring as it gets more data and then always be ready to serve a recommendation when necessary. Okay. Yeah. So that gives us, like, you know, so we have this, you know, four quadrant because I'm considering latency and context sensitivity if the model behavior, and we get these four quadrants where, you know, obviously you have like high latency is okay, but you have context sensitive and the other, basically the other four possibilities, other three possibilities. Mm-hmm. And so is part of what you've observed then, you know, are we at the point of maturity and thinking about this that, you know, for each of these quadrants, we've got like design patterns or best practices that teams, you know, either at Instacart or in the industry are following? Certainly at Instacart, we try to place ourselves in terms of, like, where does this model sort of lie, you know, just mentally, internally. And that's sort of all, the, given that we've built a few experiences, a few models over the past couple of years, we have patterns, you know, we, know, we sort of know 90% of, you know, the way the model is integrated in the rest of the product when we are thinking about the, the model. We don't have to, like, start from scratch each time. Mm-hmm. So, for example, search, search ranking, you know, we can, we, latency needs to be really low. And context sensitivity, we can start off with, you know, low context sensitivity, which means that, you, let's say, you're simply matching the search query and a bunch of products without, like, recent context. We could start there, but then as we, the way to improve the model would be to, well, continue to have latency requirement being low, but make it more context sensitive 
obviously it's a lot of work that might involve a model that is ranking, re-ranking products based on you know recent activity. So that's one example. So with search, we start. I, I call it we start from quadrant four and go to quadrant one. Sort of will be clear from the slides, I guess. But uh, with the recommendations, it's 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 almost always the case that you start with you know. In, in starting quadrant three, wherein you cache as much as possible, you score them, you know, in batch mode. You cache them, and then then you serve. So that that keeps that gives you, you know, you can use as much information as you want, and you know, gives you the, the latitude to use more data and have like recommendations. The way to improve that would be to go from quadrant four to well, quadrant three to three to two, I guess. Where you know you still you know latency is still not a consideration. You're re-ranking your products. You're you know, candid products and, you know, in the background, be ready to serve. And then finally, you might have like, con- you know, contextual recommendations wherein you have to recommend something, you know, immediately. And so that becomes like a real-time recommendation, which is, you know, a model that, you know, re-ranks a set of products that you've cached, you know, based on the context. So the set of products you've cached may be personalized or maybe not personalized, but then when you serve, you re-rank it based on user activity and make it personalized. Mm. Yeah. So how much of this machine learning engineering is machine learning and how much is engineering? Meaning a lot of what we're talking about is, you know, system level scalability, like, you know, just hardcore software engineering that, you know, in a lot of ways is orthogonal to the machine learning. Well, I guess the model stuff isn't, but... In a lot of ways, it seems orthogonal. There are principles, at least, that seem orthogonal to the thing that you're scaling, right? It's it's web scale engineering yeah. applied to ML. So, like, right. f- like fine tune that statement. How much of it, you know, is specific is domain specific, and where are those points that it gets super domain specific? That's a really good question, and I think the point at which it gets domain specific is that, as a data scientist, you understand the model its assumptions, its requirements, at what point, you know, it'll fail to perform, what does it absolutely need, what is stable stakes versus, you know, what is a cherry on the top. You understand that and you, well, you need to understand that and then articulate it to, you know, product engineers well, and to, to others on the team. Obviously, you don't want to do that right at the end when you've already built the model, but you want to do it right in the beginning so that you can know up front if there are any constraints on the, on the engineering side. Right. So it is sort of a good mix of, machine learning, you know, and software engineering, and even product design, frankly. You know, I'd imagine we've, one, of, one of the things we found, for example, is we may have some latitude in how we change the product experience for a user based on some of the constraints on the engineering and machine learning side. For example, if you want to buy yourself time to be able to score, what would that interface, what will we do with the customer at that time? How do we design the product experience? Uh, yeah. Interesting. I've been, I've talked to a few people about this. Like, I, I think there's, there's an evolving field of, like, I always call it intelligent design, but that's like way <laughs> overloaded. <laughs> but there, there needs to be, and I think there will be, you know, some, you know, thought, best practices, for lack of a better term, like a, just a, a way of thinking about designing kind of in light of machine learning and intelligence and things like that, that, you know, I don't see a lot of people talking about that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff yet. And it's not necessarily exactly what you're describing here. What you're describing is even, you know, kind of going back to the previous question, it's, it's really more 
the interaction between you know design and product engineering and like performance engineering and things like that like how does our how does the a system how does a user experience change because of the limitations you know in you know performance and product engineering and stuff like that yeah i definitely think it's definitely controversial to to suggest that we have to change user experiences to work with the limitations of you know engineering or machine learning right and it may not be common to do that, but I wish I had like more examples where it's possible to do. Maybe, maybe it's not something that we generally talk about, if, if indeed it happens in the field. And that's the other thing, which is like, it's hard to talk like, about machine learning models in production widely, simply because there are a lot of details that are probably very specific to the product, and you know, one just assumes that it's not interesting to somebody else, mm-hmm. or that these details don't really generalize. So there is no... There are definitely basic principles, you know, of software engineering. But beyond that, are there other principles that are specific or that are more important when it comes to like software engineering with like machine learning systems or data right. products? So I called out a couple of examples of some work in the community. Like recently, maybe about early this year, there was a, a document from one of the machine learning engineers at Google about I think it's called Rules of Machine Learning or so. It talks about a really nice, what I think is a required reading for data scientists building data products, about what are the different things, what are the different trade-offs, what are the different stages of building a data product. And talks a lot about the engineering aspects, the training, the data management, metrics, the interface between like metrics and uh, model formulations and so on. It's kind of like, you know, it's a four-page PDF with with such density of knowledge like at, at Instacart we had like a reading group session we spent like I led a group with like two hours of going through that and talking through like salient ideas from that paper okay well I have to make sure I get a link yeah. for that one and post it up in the show notes definitely yeah, yeah. There's one more paper that I like quickly which from Pinterest where they talk about the evolution of the recommendation systems over three years and this is it's a really good one I think it talks about incidentally it talks about how they started off with a simple system that was like caching recommendations of the quadrant three world. And then from the, how they progress from that to, you know, quadrant one, wherein they use what you get, what you cache, and then you re-rank it with a model. It's helpful to have this, you know, view of how this really massive, you know, at scale recommendation system evolved so that, you know, people who haven't done that before don't need to believe that we need to start with what Pinterest has in production after three years of work. Right, right. right. So, sort of underappreciated part of literature, I think. Yeah. Well, this is maybe a little bit of a tangent, but I don't know if you've heard on some recent podcasts I've mentioned that I'm going to be starting a, like an online paper reading group of podcast listeners. I, I mentioned it randomly in a podcast, and like there were a bunch of people who expressed interest in it. So I'm going to be getting that kicked off. But since you mentioned that you are involved in one at Instacart, yeah. any tips for running a, a paper reading group? Great. So yeah, let me see. We have like two different sessions where all the data scientists come together. Okay. You know, sort of alternate weeks and. One of them is, or the one that I was talking about, we call that lunch and learn. We, have, we do it over lunch every Tuesday. And the bar, in a sense, is that, you know, ahead of time we, we talk about, like, what paper we are, what somebody's going to lead a discussion. Right. That person doesn't need to have completely understood 
but it's it's helpful for them to be able to know enough to drive the discussion. It's obviously optional for you know people who want to attend because there are you know we have we touch different domains in Instacart, so somebody may not be particularly you know keen on a paper. And but then it helps to have like discussion. You know, if you come in, make sure you've skimmed the paper and you know, come in for discussion. We talk about what the paper, some of the you know, what are the takeaways from the paper, and also like how that immediately might apply to what we're working on. You know, in our regular work. How uh, long do they tend to run? It's a one hour, and we typically have anything from like eight to twelve people in that you know group. Okay. You know, I would say maybe like four to five of them will have like looked at the paper a little bit. Yeah. But I think these are opportunities for people to not just learn, but also lead a discussion. Right. And you know, people get better at it as they go. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I'm really looking yeah. forward to it. And uh, like I said, a lot of people, have, a lot of other people seem to be yeah. looking forward to it as well. So I'd love yeah. to have you join us and walk yeah. us through a paper of your, of your choice. Really? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's very common in like grad school and like research labs to be like yeah. doing this. Like reading the paper is is an art, and understanding like what is the next, what what are the assumptions, what do they achieve, what what are the opportunities from here, like how can we build on that, uh, what is relevant to us, right? How hard is it to reproduce, you know, in our environment, right? That you know, what are the generalizable lessons, so to speak? Right. Yeah. right. Those are sort of the questions we are thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, kind of going back to your presentation, what are the generalizable lessons from your presentation? Sure. So one of them is to think deeply about how the model integrates into your product. Have that discussion ahead of time with people outside, you know, your own group, like off data scientists, maybe, you know, product managers, product engineers, like the kickoff meeting should probably talk about that. And at what level are you having that conversation? Because there's integration from the perspective of data, there's integration from the perspective of data sources, APIs... Yeah, generally at the level of APIs. Okay. And it's also a way to sort of get a buy-in from product engineers, build that relationship so that it, you know, things shouldn't look like you're just throwing things over the fence to the engineer and asking them to like productionize mm-hmm. it. I think for them to understand it in a way that is at a level that they can even provide an input to and, you know, contribute to improve the design, like the technical implementation would be helpful. And I, I picked out like two different aspects of like latency and context sensitivity. There might be others. I mean, I picked up two, and I got a four quadrant hub. Yeah, we can we can pick, look at you know more aspects of it that are generalizable across models. And yeah, this I hope it sort of evolves into a discussion about how we can you know we have ways to talk about model prototypes you know, how a problem is set up and how training data is generated. You know, at some point, you know, the model is fit and we persist the model. We have, you know, abstractions about what happens, you know, in training phases. But abstractions that help us understand how a model is, you know, being served, how the model predictions are being served, and, you know, how it's actually executed and implemented might be helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I keep coming back to this idea of design patterns yeah. like you know you may be familiar with yeah. the gang of four yeah. design patterns yeah. book where there's you know they've cataloged i don't remember the year but you know cataloged a lot of object oriented yeah. yeah. design principles like are we there yet with machine learning or great question i think i probably had a i tweeted this question a few maybe maybe a year ago like oh, what yeah? sort of abstractions do we have for you know serving machine learning models in right. production right 
I don't know of any that is that substantially builds on like you know software engineering patterns like or I don't know of anything that the community has agreed on. I'm sure there are a lot of things that in people's heads. Yeah. And a little bit that I'm talking about today will be about like what I you know have seen and working in in our team. But going back to the Google Doc, I think that again, although it talks about more than just serving, I think we need more of that in the, in the community. Yeah. To imagine that there isn't enough generalizable because things are just too coupled with the with the product is probably not not true. Mm. Mm. Yeah, you made an interesting comment early in the conversation about how you have a lot of these machine learning models in production, but they, you know, at some level, they all seem like snowflakes, I guess is what I mm-hmm. took from that. And that, you know, it's been, it's been an effort and a challenge to kind of extract the general principles from across these different environments. Is that kind of what you were getting at? Yeah, insofar as we're talking about like implementation. Yes. Right. Yeah. Right. They're solving different problems, but they might be like in terms of like software engineering patterns, they share like some of these aspects that they're even in one of these quadrants. Yeah. Are there common implementation slash architectural patterns that you know that are kind of assumptions for you guys that you know you're you're doing across all at least all new efforts? Like for example microservices are you doing microservices containers are you doing containers like does any of that where does the kind of evolution of the state of the art in you know software engineering for non ml stuff intersect with ml stuff good question and well to your earlier point yeah we have services that are well we can call them microservices i guess but yeah we have you know engineers well product engineers and machine learning engineers agree on you know, certain contracts. And so that is like table stakes. There are questions about like, what can we cache? What can we not cache? Mm-hmm. There are questions about, well, yeah, how long can we cache something? You know, what sort of, what sort of data stores we might use and what is configurable, what is not? What is, okay. yeah, what is an experiment versus what is not? Most things are experiments. How much do we expect to iterate on this feature before you know we think we're done for a while? Yeah, which is I think for a company like Instacart, where there are a lot of a lot of different places we can invest in. It might be like quite a few months before we come back to you know we two of something that we built. Yeah, because you know we're still exploring the space of areas where machine learning can help and you know where help the most. I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but to your to your point about like beyond software engineering, what is new? Yeah, I don't think I have an answer right now. Okay, okay. To follow up on your last comment on just the opportunity prioritization, at Instacart, are you generally taking an approach of, like, trying to take on, you know, big moonshot types of problems and, you know, make a few small big bets to kind of, you know, ensure that your resources are focused on, you know, these things that could have outsized impact, or is it more... You know, we're going to try to, you know, we're going to try to touch, you know, broadly, you know, in, you know, high impact but more concentrated ways to kind of spread that impact around the, you know, the systems and the various business teams and processes. Yeah, I think there's probably the, there's a top down and bottom up in terms of what sort of projects get worked on and explored. You know, within within say data science, for just to stay in data science for a moment, 
So we have company goals about like what are we you know, quarterly goals, long term goals that translate to company goals, which typically talk you know are aligned to some metrics, and you know different teams should know how they can move certain metrics, and you know there is and then we think about like what sort of a data science effort could serve that metric. So there is that. What I call the bottom up is well you know in the end we are still we are. We are e-commerce, but also last mile, you know, logistics operation. So naturally with that domain, some problems just are there. Like if you have e-commerce operation, you have a search engine. If you have a search engine, you're probably working on like, you know, spell correction and autocomplete and, you know, search ranking, matching, basically understanding the queries better and recommendation systems and so on. So... So we already know, given the kind of data we have we, and we collect, what sort of problems have been addressed, like what sort of product features have been useful in that sense. So between the top-down and bottom-up, I think we generally find, you know, tactically projects to work on, you know, given, you know, current goals. Yeah. And oftentimes, you know, we hit, like, diminishing utilities soon enough or plateau. Okay. Soon enough, maybe in the first version, and we might we might wait for like a while before we come back to it. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Well, I think you've got a presentation yeah. to get ready for, but I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with us, and I'm looking forward to your talk. Sure. Thank you, Sam. Thanks, Sean. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued support of this podcast. For the notes for this episode, to ask any questions, or to let us know how you like the show, leave a comment on the show notes page at twimlai.com slash talk slash 39. Thanks again to our sponsor for the Wrangle Conference Series, Cloudera. To learn more about Cloudera and the company's data science workbench family of products, visit them at cloudera.com. And be sure to let them know how much you appreciate their support of the podcast by tweeting to them at at Cloudera. If you're interested in joining our first Twimmel online meetup, where we'll discuss Apple's recent research paper on generative adversarial networks, you can register for that at twimlai.com meetup. And don't forget to sign up for our email newsletter at twimlai.com newsletter. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.